You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Gerald Posner. You've heard of his writings. You've seen him on television. He has an absolutely wonderful X account if we want to say X instead of Twitter. So I want to make sure to get his uh, X handle out there so you can follow him. I've known about him and read stuff from him for quite a long time, and it's obviously a great honor to have him on here for several reasons, his love of history, and not just that, it's his fearless love of true history and his willingness to do absolutely incredible research to get to the truth. Mr. Posner, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And Mr. Vane, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And interesting when you give that introduction, if you think that there was a time, you probably wouldn't have had to say true history. We just viewed history as history. <laughs> and, yeah. and now you're right. There's so many variations of what I call history, so many slants of history, so much misinformation out there, so many false histories that occasionally you do have to do a little picking and choosing of who's providing you the information and and make sure they're trustworthy. And the nefarious, this is my truth. This is my history, which that's a whole podcast. But yeah, I mean, I've enjoyed your writings. I love watching you on television. You're and anyone can go on and and look at Mr. Posner's interviews and other sorts of things uh, on YouTube. They're there. There's a great one with Michael Smirkanish about uh, your book, Case Closed, which we're going to discuss about the Kennedy assassination. Let me just start from the beginning. Uh, I interviewed a guy named Bob Kravitz a few days ago. He's a sports writer, a sports columnist, used to work here. Now he's on Substack. And I said, when did you get bit by the writing bug? 
So I'll ask you the question. When did you get by the writing, get bit by the writing bug? I didn't know actually that I had been bit by the writing bug until after it had already done it. And what I mean by that <laughs> is in another life, I was a lawyer and I was actually representing in a very small practice in New York back in around 1981, a couple of survivors of Joseph Mengele, the Nazi doctor's experiments in Auschwitz. They had come to me, been sent by a friend who was in the Justice Department, and they were looking at suing the Mengele family for keeping Joseph Mengele alive or the German government for not doing enough to capture him. And I took their case on Mark Berkowitz and his sister, two twins from those experiments, as a pro bono case. And I figured, oh, it'll be a couple of hours a week. It became a four-year obsession of mine, <laughs> not much to my one law partner's great disdain or disappointment that I wasn't there more often. And during that process, if you have a singular focus on something, you can come up with a lot of things people haven't before. So I came up with thousands of pages on Mengele's life on the run. It was new. And eventually that lawsuit was thrown out of court. You can't sue in U.S. federal court for crimes committed in occupied Poland by a German officer 40 years ago. Okay, I get it. Right. Yeah. And I said, I'll turn it into a book. The And I had a co-author, John Ware, who had done a documentary, a British documentarian, worked at that time for Granada and later for the BBC. And he had done a documentary on Mengele. And we approached a publisher and they said, okay, why don't you two do it? Mengele wasn't big in the news, believe it or not then. And that's how I got into doing the first book. But the writing bug had in fact bit me because <laughs> when I came back from South America on one of the research trips, I said to Tricia, my wife, we had been together since 1980, and this is only a couple of years we've been together. And I said, Trisha, evidently, I met these Corsicans down in Paraguay, and they know not much about Nazis, but they used to be involved in the French connection and heroin trafficking, and now they're fugitives in Paraguay. And they said to me, by the way, the heroin business used to be an honorable business, but it's been taken over by the Chinese and it's gone to hell. So I said, evidently, the Chinese have taken over the heroin business. Would you like to do a book about that after we finish this one on Joseph Mengele? And she said, sure. I knew she was then the right person for me. <laughs> we went down to the Golden Triangle after the Mengele book, spent a few months, wandered around Burma and everything else. And the second book was about the international heroin trade. So that's how it happened. I never sat down and said, I'm going to be a writer. Never sat down and said, oh, I'm going to leave the law to do this. It's just that I enjoyed, if that's the right word, doing the research and the background and the hunting and the digging so much on the Mengele biography that I thought, let's see if we can do it again. And again, 13 books later, I'm still doing it. Does it, we were talking before the podcast started, my graduate degrees in medieval history. And when I tell people that they look at me like, so you're, you're starving, like you, you can't feed your family or yourself, but writing a thesis and doing all the research necessary for a thesis really has helped. I do public relations for a living now. It helps me as a better writer. It makes me a better analyst. There's lots of benefits. How did going to law school or how has it made you a better, however you want to define it, a better author, researcher? Uh, it, it's been a great help because, and part of that is I even in high school, I've been involved on, I was always on the debate team. I wasn't the football star. I was the debate guy. In, in college, I was at Berkeley. I was on the debate team. And then it's one of the reasons I went into law. I thought, oh, that's fantastic. That's what lawyers do. They debate in court over who's guilty or who's not. A little bit different than what I imagined. But that ability to 
understand both sides of an argument. Very important because it lets me do interviews, even with people who at times are odious, the children of Nazi war criminals who support their parents for what they did. I tried to get their perspective and then get information from them as opposed to sitting down and calling them scoundrels mm -hmm. and, and fools and everything else. There's a way to do the interviews in getting information out. It's also let me, this is key, Robert, for me, I've always had a very sticky memory, so it helps with large projects. When I went into the first law firm I was hired at for a couple of years, it was a place called Cravath Swain & Moore in New York City. They were defending IBM on the charge by the Justice Department that IBM was a monopolist. As it shows you how old that is. Sure. Who can think of IBM as monopolizing the computer yeah. business. The point is the case had been going on from the last day of the Johnson administration. I arrived in, in 1978. Years later, mm -hmm. the trial transcript was nearly a million pages long, a lot of exhibits. I was a young associate on it. And you made yourself useful to the senior partners by getting to understand the case. And I was able to do that in many ways. I, I knew where the exhibits were. I knew where information was. I understood how things connected. And that's the way my brain works when I go on a big project like the Vatican or the mm -hmm. Kennedy assassination or whatever else. I'm not dissuaded by a project that's going to involve a ton of archival research or tens of thousands of pages of documents. That's the type of material I like. What often other writers will say, oh, I'm, I just have to stay away from that because I'll never get out of this. There's always a story to be told. And I like it when there's a lot of material there. So I think that the legal background helps to look at the credible evidence and to understand it. No better case than in the, the Kennedy case or in the King assassination in which you'll have multiple accounts of a single incident taking place on the day of the murder. And you have to resolve which one you think is providing the credible information. And then as the writer, you have to present to your readers why you've decided that this information is more valid than what somebody else says that contradicts it. And maybe it's because it was contemporaneous in time, maybe because it's supported by other witnesses or by documents. But that process is partly legal and partly just the nature of doing good logical research. Was it, I'm going to use the word odd, that's not the right word. Was it odd to start your writing career, that aspect of your professional life, with a book on Joseph Mengele? The, I mean, did you ever think about starting out a little lighter? No, no you know, the, uh, I guess, so one of the things that drove me to take the pro bono case, when I left that large firm and opened up a small firm, it was a public interest law firm. Uh, we wanted to do things that had an element that was, uh, you know, that served some public interest. The Mengele certainly did that for us. Doing the Chinese triads and the heroin business was a bit of what I called bringing a spotlight to that. And I've seen that a number of times, whether it's uh, talking about 9-11 or doing a book on uh, the finances of the Vatican or the pharmaceutical industry or looking at political assassinations like Kennedy or that. Occasionally, after the King assassination, I took what I called a break. Doris Kearns Goodwin or David Halberstam used to take sure. a break from their heavy work by doing a book on baseball. So I said to Tricia, we decide on book projects together. I said, how about a book on the business history of Motown Records? Um, we both like Motown music and that'll be light in comparison to everything else. 
And she said at the time, you're probably going to discover that maybe uh, the Supremes were just lip singing their entire career or something. You'll have all the fans after you. So we, there is a chapter in there called Suitcases of Cash about how the artist got ripped off for a large time, but with nobody counting the royalties. But in the end, that was a, a bit of a break. It wasn't the same public interest, what I call motivation that gets me going. And I have to say, I know I'm very lucky to have publishers that will essentially now, I still have to convince them. I still get no's. Look at no's are part of the writing process. Mm -hmm. If you don't get no's, you're not proposing enough ideas. So I will propose something to a publisher and they'll say, no, forget about it. Sometimes I come back with it years later. That happened with the Vatican. It, came, it happened with JFK. But for the most part, if I come up with a subject they like, they may not pay a lot for it up front, but right. they're willing to let me go off without knowing what my conclusions are. I've given them a subject, but I haven't given them the answers because I haven't done the research yet. And a lot of writers come up and they say, I know what I'm going to say about this subject. I want to write about 9-11 and this is my, these are my final conclusions. That's fantastic if you know that, but I don't know that. And I follow the evidence and I, part of the evidence is who agrees to talk to me. The sources that sure. agree to speak to you are those who form your view of the world, those who don't talk to you. You're not quite sure what happens. Sometimes you're chasing a part of an archive um, that you hope will be opened up. It gets opened up and you've got a, a ton of new information. Other times it stays closed, like with the Vatican secret archives, they kept them closed to me on issues. So you don't know what you'll have as the story in the book for a couple of years. And that's always a great, publishers don't like that for the most part. They like to know what they're buying. So they hate an idea that they're confident enough I will come back with a story, but they don't know if I'm going to come back with a big story or not. They didn't know when I did the JFK book that I was going to come back and say it was Oswald alone. I didn't know that. I'm lucky that when I do come back with those conclusions, they stick with it and publish me as opposed to saying, thanks, goodbye, find another publisher. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We are having a conversation with Gerald Posner. He has written more than a dozen books tackling a variety of subjects. He's an author and historian. Are you an erstwhile attorney or are you an attorney? No, no, I'm not, I'm not, everybody. I've used this line before. I wish it was the, the first time I was using it was here, but it's true. I'm everybody's favorite type of lawyer because I'm a non-practicing attorney. <laughs> the, um, and, you know, the, but I will say that, and I'll probably be punished forever for this in terms of writing when you said before and you get the writing bug, you, we used to live in New York City. We lived there from, uh, I moved in 78 there. Tricia moved from London. We met in 1980, and then we didn't move out until 2005. So that was uh, home for us. In New York, one of the first questions people ask you is, what do you do? The, and when you say you're a lawyer, when I used to say that in the beginning years, even if they don't like lawyers, there's some respect for the profession. They know you had to go to law school. You had to get the degree. You went to a firm. You say you're a writer. The, the, the response nine times out of 10 is, oh, uh, you're so lucky you have the time to write. I've been meaning to write a book about X, Y, or Z. I just don't have the time. As if the only thing that keeps you from writing it <laughs> is the time. I must just have a lot of spare time. And there's a respect for the profession in terms of law. And I do find that in those instances in which I'm going to, especially government sources, I'm reaching out to German former intelligence sources or in England, reaching out to people in the police department who had been there. If I'm doing a story or in the health department, and I put in U.S.-based attorney and author. The attorney part clicks another part of the, the little box that says, okay, 
maybe not a complete maniac. And yeah. so I think that helps a little bit. That's great to hear since uh, my son's in law school. Ah, where at? McKinney, Robert McKinney here. In oh, yeah. Fantastic. Just and graduated. He just graduated? Just graduated from Purdue, and he just finished his first semester of law school. And in the public relations business, I always uh, say, tell my clients that uh, credibility is everything. When you message, credibility is everything. And uh, being able to say you're in a situation where the law is introduced to the discussion or the confrontation or controversy, and you can say, look, I'm an attorney. Then the other person, if they're, especially if they're not an attorney goes, okay, I can't, I can't throw all my law and order knowledge at you and, and cow you into doing what I say. So I agree with that. There is a lot of, of credibility that comes along with it for sure. I mean, we talked just a few minutes about the Mangala book. It was your first one. It's called Mangala, the first, the complete story, excuse me. You co-wrote it with John Ware, and I want to talk about a couple of other books that you've written, but I first, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but didn't Leonard Nimoy, in search of, do an episode on Mangala where they tried to find him? That may well be. I'd be surprised maybe if Leonard Nimoy didn't, because I do know that Mangala was, in 1985, on the cover of People magazine as one of the, quote, 25 most interesting people of the year. They haven't put a Nazi war criminal on again as interesting persons of the year. So Mengele was making the rounds in 85 and 86, and maybe later Leonard uh, Nimoy did do it in search of. I wasn't involved in that production, but uh, I'm sure it was a good one. The reason I mention it is because it seemed to be for so many years, you just didn't really hear much. I was born in 67, so I wasn't alive uh, when when the Israelis snatched up Eichmann. But why do you think there was this sort of lull when the pursuit, or maybe I'm wrong on this, the pursuit of Nazi war criminals just didn't have the same energy as it had before? No, you're absolutely right, as a matter of fact. So after Eichmann's kidnapping in 1960, then he goes on trial in Israel. And although there was still, an, that you had private Nazi owners like Simon Wiesenthal, Tuvia mm-hmm. Friedman out of Haifa, the Klarsfields, Bieta and Serge in, in Paris. But the governments had basically stopped. The Germans weren't looking really, they put on a big trial in 1964 in Frankfurt. Uh, my wife, Tricia, writes about one of the protagonists, this pharmacist of Auschwitz, who ends up as one of a, a couple dozen defendants in that trial. After that trial, the Germans said to one another, We've done our work. That's the big trial. We don't have to try anybody else. The Israelis, I talked to the head of the Mossad, who was replaced the one who was there when they kidnapped Eichmann. And he said to me, I thought about Nazi war criminals in my ears running the Israeli Mossad maybe for 10 minutes because we were fighting for the existence of the state of Israel. We didn't have the luxury of looking for Nazi war criminals any longer. So they weren't using their assets for it. And that's how guys like Mengele got lucky because although they were high on the wanted list because they were notorious, the the hunt for them had 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 in many ways stopped the official hunt. And the private Nazi hunters, as I talk about in the book, didn't have the resources. They would get flooded with fake tips. They'd have them in Paraguay one day and then in Argentina the next, then somebody would say they spotted them and went bowling with them in art, you know, in, in Uruguay. And they didn't know what to make of them. So as a result, that false information helped them stay free. And by the time I was doing the lawsuit in 81, the only reason 
I was able to get the information I did from the Argentinians and others, and then have McGraw-Hill agreed to put out a biography on Mengele was because he had fallen off the radar in many ways. He, If he had been in the news as much as he was starting in 1985 and 86, I think the publisher like McGraw-Hill would have said, maybe we need a more established Third Reich yeah. historian or something yeah. to do it. But nobody was looking at this somewhat unusual Nazi war criminal who was notorious but was out of the news. And then what happened in 1985, of course, was that we ended up having for the, the first time the 40th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And Ava Kaur, survivors from the Midwest, and Mark Berkowitz, who was my client, they went back to Auschwitz and they called on the U.S. and other countries to do something. And the Clinton administration, the U.S. and other countries got involved. They released documents inside the government. I got a, a file released to me at that time from a freedom of information request from the Army that showed that Mengele had been captured twice by the U.S. Army in the months after the war and then released because we didn't know he was in the SS and he wasn't on any wanted list then. So all types of information was coming out. And Mengele suddenly went from being this sort of notorious cr uh, criminal known to a handful of people to being the most infamous in, of the last remaining Nazi war criminals. Let me ask you two quick questions. One, you mentioned you described him as notorious. What made him particularly notorious in a group of people that were sanguinarily notorious? And two, why did these German, these Nazis, why was South America seemingly their most preferred destination for refuge? Yeah. So the I think, you know, what made Mengele so notorious among a whole group of people that, that qualify for that designation, you're right, is that if we are looking at someone, there's a there was a war criminal uh, Ukrainian involving called John Demanyuk. He was reported. Oh, yeah, the guard. Yeah, the guard. But often the real John Demanyuk they were looking for often used to drink. He was sadistic, go through his thing. He was a, if you're a sadistic person and you're assigned to a concentration camp, you've hit the lottery. It's good for right. you. A lot of them used to drink. A lot of them didn't like it. The Nazis would write home to their wives and the women who were there would write home to their husbands. And they didn't think it was a great assignment. But Mengele was different because he was young. He was 33 years old. A lot of them were young, but he was a doctor. He had a double uh, major. He had a philosophy uh, major as well as a doctorate. He had gone to school at the height of the Nazi racial ideology and excelled near the top of his class. He had a mentor in Frankfurt at this biological hereditary center who had taken him under his wing. And Mengele, who had fought on the Eastern Front, the Soviets, and was wounded and got an Iron Cross, viewed the assignment to Auschwitz as a great assignment. He wanted it because it offered him human experiments. It offered him the chance to take twins, which was his specialty, and use one as a control and one for the experiments. And basically children, he conducted among 3,000 twins during his tenure at Auschwitz. This man who was brilliant in terms of his academic achievement, who would whisko arias from uh, different operas, who read Goethe and German literature, was also capable of some of the most horrific human experiments on children. And then after the war, he didn't have a bad thought about it. He never had a, a night where he lost sleep. He never was burdened by a guilty conscience. He viewed himself as a true racial genetic warrior trying to create a better race. And I will tell you, no wonder he stands out as one of the worst to us, because we think with that education and background, he should have known better. But he didn't, because he's the example of science cut off from all morality. 
me and if we had Robert, if we had here in the United States the equivalent of those camps for any ethnic, racial group, whatever, I'm sure that there would be some physicians who would justify to themselves, oh, if I go there and work with those people, they're going to die anyway. I didn't create those concentration camps. Maybe I can find the cure for cancer or something else, some bogus idea. They'd be there. He's not unique in that way, but he's studying what made Mengele Mengele as part of the fascination and very quickly. South America, they wanted to stay in Germany. Some of them did stay in Germany the, for a long time and got away with it. But when it was heating up on Mengele, he went to South America four years after the end of the war because Argentina was a safe haven. It was neutral during the war, but it was really tilted toward the Germans. Juan Perón, who was the dictator, and Evita, little Eva, his wife, um, had taken in tens of millions of dollars of Nazi loot and stolen gold. They had helped others escape. Uh, they got a cut of the pay for that. There were areas in Argentina up in Bariloche, the ski resort and that, that looked more German than parts of Bavaria. There are German-speaking communities. And somebody like Mengele was able to go there and reestablish himself in a very well-heeled German community that was sympathetic to the German cause in the war and viewed people like him as a victim of the victors, meaning that they had told all these stories about him. And if Germany had won, the war criminals would have been the pilots on the Enola Gay who dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. Sure or the British pilots who firebombed Dresden to that. And the only difference with who was a war criminal is who won the war. That's how they viewed it in Argentina. Or the uh, Japanese internment camps. In That's the right. Of the United States. So you mentioned a, just a few seconds ago, he didn't lose sleep. He didn't do all these other things. My friends make fun of me and they should. I read Helter Skelter when I was 12, 1979, 1980. I still have nightmares to this day about it. How does someone like Joseph Mengele be so cold, detached, to not have any regrets? And, and quite frankly, since we know you didn't talk to him, how do you know that he, I know how he feels this way, but please tell the Leaders and Legends podcast audience, how did you get this information that he basically had no regrets? The, the reason I know it is Mengele did something unusual for a Nazi war criminal. He kept a diary. They, and that diary didn't come out until he was dead. And he sent hundreds and hundreds of pages of personal letters to his family in Germany, castigating them over the years for not taking better care of him, not sending him more money, telling his son, who he had met only once as an adult, knew him briefly after the war, that he should work harder and this. So his son, his only son, Rolf Mengele, a lawyer, made all of those documents available after his father died to a German magazine. That magazine was afraid that the documents might not be real. They could be fakes, forgeries. How would they know? There had oh, been yeah, a Hitler, the, the Hitler, Hitler diary. diary. Trevor, huge Trevor, Trevor Roper. Roper one, said one the, they were right, real. The Third Reich historian at Oxford, when the great Third Reich historian said they were real, got fooled, and then they turned out to be fakes. The German magazine called in a panel. They had the German FBI test the paper to see if it was the real, when it's a 1957 diary. Is it really 1957 paper, the ink? They called in a group of historians and they called me in to sit on a panel because I had all these documents that I had already had on Mengele. We sat across the table from Rolf Mengele, the rest of the group, and questioned him for two weeks. Later, Rolf Mengele talked to me in depth about the meeting that he had with his father when in two years before his father died, in which Rolf was then 33. His father was 66, and he traveled covertly to South America under a French passport. 
He was afraid the Germans were following him. They weren't even looking for him. And he went to confront his father over Auschwitz. He wanted to hear that this man he didn't know, didn't grow up with, he wanted his father to say to him, you know what? We had no choice. I hated it there, but those were orders. And if I didn't do it, I would have been killed. It was a horrible place. And I've never, I can't explain it to you. Instead, his father gave a full-throated defense for it and said, you'll never appreciate what we were trying to achieve in terms of genetics and racial purity. Don't question me about Auschwitz. And in those first days in which the son almost leaves, he ends up staying there a couple of weeks. That's the real Mengele. You find out what he really feels about it. It's not a fake defense. This is the defense of the true believer who you ask, how is it possible that he doesn't have any empathy, that he doesn't have any feeling? Well, there are 50,000 Nazis in the administration of the concentration camps. Only two or three of them ever committed suicide. They went back to real jobs. They went back to nursing. Those who didn't go to jail, they went back to being lawyers or accountants or whatever else. And part of the reason for that is they had successfully in their mind made the Jews and the gypsies and those who'd been sent because they were gay and the Soviet Jehovah's Witnesses. Yes, exactly. Jehovah's Witnesses, those who are disabled as less than human. They took away their dignity. And when they were dealing with them in the camps, these people are surviving on 600 calories, 700 calories a day. They're emaciated. They look like walking skeletons. They haven't bathed. They are fighting over a scrap of food. And the Nazis view them as this less than human remnants of the Third Reich. It's a remarkable mass psychosis that takes place among a Western country that gave us some of the great philosophers and music and everything else of time. And so it really makes us uncomfortable. Not to say, and I don't mean by that, to diminish in any way, let's say, the four millions killed in Cambodia by Pol Pot, the great massacres that have happened in Africa. But I think that as a country that had largely been derived from Western or Eastern Europeans, Americans at the end of World War II were even more shocked that the, the, the Germans were behaving in this unbelievable level of cruelty. Shouldn't have been. Should have been no more surprising than the Japanese doing it in the Far East, but somehow it seemed as though it was. And that's, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's one of the reasons that, that people like uh, General Patton and others were telling Eisenhower and Bradley and these other folks, look, you've got to come over here. You have to see what's going on here. And then that's, And then Eisenhower and other generals pulled the people out of the villages, made them go through it. You have to go through and see this now that we've done it. No one will be able to say that it didn't happen. And then, of course, there are people who say it didn't happen. And- yeah. No, what you said, though, is so interesting because you're right. Thank goodness for Eisenhower's decision to do that. Patton urging him to do it. Then Eisenhower decides we're going to make people all because the American military was hearing the same thing. I see some of the early counterintelligence reports, the CIC reports. They're going into villages right outside of these large concentration camps where people have been slaughtered in large numbers. And what they're hearing from all the residents, even those who worked on the train system, worked in transport, provided food. They said, oh, we didn't know. We didn't know what was happening just six kilometers away. You're kidding. You mean people were killed? It was a clear lie. And forcing them to go back and see it, even no matter what they heard, was it was a 
It's a very telling moment. You see some of those black and white films mm-hmm. of the of the villagers going through that or the people from the city averting their eyes, not wanting to see it, uh, the rotting corpses in the mass graves. It's, it's still helter-skelter stayed with you and gave you those uneasy nights. I read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich a few years after it was out. I must have been around your age at 12 then, mm-hmm. and it had an impact on me. And then William Shire? Shire. William Shire's book, mm-hmm. and then got me into Escape from Sobibor and, and Bobby Yar and, and Mila 18 and all those things. So I was a Catholic kid in, in Catholic school with Sisters of Charity as my teachers, and then on to Jesuits in high school and somehow obsessed with the Holocaust. But uh, <laughs> those images stayed with me forever. Let's talk just for a minute, please, about another book, and then we'll get to your book, Case Closed, which had some phenomenal reviews by people who know what the hell they're talking about. But I want to ask you about another book very quickly. It's called Hitler's Children, Sons and Daughters of Leaders of the Third Reich Talk About Themselves and Their Fathers. I was astonished by some of the things that were in it, and I can't put it any other way. In this in current society where we're forced to, or people want us to apologize for stuff that happened a thousand years ago, we have to apologize for the Crusades started in 1095, right? Council of Claremont, good old right. Pope Urban II. Did you get that sense that the guilt transferred from generation to generation, or was it more of, I had nothing to do with it. I can't speak for dad. Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. So I clearly believe that you can't blame the sons or daughters for the sins of the father. I get that. But you can blame them if they're carrying water for their father, if they're saying still, by the way. I I have a a YouTube video, 18 minutes of a YouTube video, an interview with Rolf Mengele on the Phil Donahue show. For most of your listeners will never heard of Phil Donahue, but for those who did, he was an early television talk show host. And I take Rolf on there. I criticize him for not having turned his father in. And he says, I would never turn him in, even though I think what he did is disgusting because he was my father and I still wouldn't do it. And people respond to that. There are thousands of comments on that uh, video. Some say I understand it and some condemn him. What the children do afterwards, one of the children, Wolf Hess, whose father was Rudolf Hess, the deputy Fuhrer uh, to Hitler, slavish follower of Hitler, flew over to England to try to come to a peace deal and then spent the rest of his life in a British jail. His son was a real neo-Nazi supporter of the far right and his father. He uh, hated the British because they had done that with his father. Uh, and uh, Trisha, my wife, who is Jewish and British, met him. I said she does interviews with me. She was very reticent about that meeting, and he was fine with her. He picked her up at one point on a 55th Street in New York City and gave her a bear hug. I was afraid for a moment he was going to give her a slammer to the street, <laughs> but he didn't. And so it was an amazing process to get into their minds because his view, if you read the Hess chapter, I find what he says, he's now deceased, to be objectionable. I condemn it, his support for his father and his revisionist view of history. But he didn't mind saying it. He just wanted to get it onto the record. And that's unusual because people think that I've always been a believer. When I go to interview these people, like the second generation, I say to them, I'll tell your story that you want to tell, but I'm not guaranteeing that you're going to like it because I'm also going to provide my own history and review about your father. And it may be very different than what you think. I never say to anybody, I'm going to tell your story and you're going to like it. I think that's a sure way to end up in trouble because people, oh, then it it, it keeps your hands stuck. And 
I, the dozen people that I interviewed in that book were the dozen children that agreed to speak to me. Rolf Mengele had been the first, and that's where I got the idea. But in the end, by, by luck, six of them ended up condemning their fathers vehemently. A pair of sons, brothers, to Hans Frank, the governor general of Poland, Mm. They both condemned him, but one said it was a great father, and the other one just thinks he's the devil. It's amazing to see the difference in how children are in that. And then six of the children still supported their father, somehow had some delusional aspect or denial about what their fathers had done and why they weren't really guilty of anything. Given that, this is an awful question. I always like to tell on my own self, tell on myself when I either don't know what I'm talking about or about to ask a question that could be construed as as wrong, tough, did the Gerbils therefore do their kids a favor? Oh, yeah, very interesting. What a way, they, even the dog, the, 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 dog. Fa- the family dog, uh, you talk about slavish devotion to the Fuhrer. You, may, Fuhrer want to, you may want to tell what happened, I won't tell yeah, it. Yeah, okay. What did so the in, in, the Fuhr- in the Fuhrer bunker, the, where Hitler's holed up in, in Berlin as the Russian troops are advancing and they start to hear the Nazis who are left with him, a group of top aides and Joseph Goebbels, who's the minister of propaganda and his wife and their five children and their family dog are staying. They're all in the Fuhrer bunker and they can start to hear the Russian artillery getting closer to Berlin. It's coming in fast from the east. The Russians are advancing and Everyone in the hierarchy says to Hitler, you've got to get out of here. You've got to move west. Get away from the Russians. They're, they get you. They'll torture you. And, and Berlin could fall. We don't know if we could hold it. And Hitler is completely gone at this point. And you talk about raving and ranting and yeah. says, if you, don't, if you, the German people, don't have the ability to hold Berlin, then you're useless. Nothing. I won't leave Berlin. And finally decides, okay, I've stayed so long. They're coming there a day away. And he wants, he decides to commit suicide. So does his new wife, Ava Braun, who they marry in the Fuhrer bunker. And Goebbels is there with Martin Bormann, who's Hitler's private secretary, who's a big ranking Nazi. Bormann escapes. He wants to get away. He tries to get to South America, but he gets killed by a a tank shot as he's trying to flee from Berlin. He doesn't want to die for the Third Reich. But Goebbels says, I'll die with the Fuhrer. If the Fuhrer is not going to live, I can't live. And not only does he decide to do that, but his wife decides the same. And they first administer the poison to their five children. If you see a picture of Goebbels' children, they look like Goebbels doesn't look very Aryan, tall, blonde, but the children look like the image of these young, blonde, Aryan children, these very innocent kids. And even the blondie, the the family dog, is poisoned first. And I can't think of any sort of sign of of madness more than Jim Jones, the preacher, 900 people dead, and some of them knowingly drinking the poison. We've seen some crazy things over time. That moment in the Fuhrer bunker, when you're killing your own family, your own children, is remarkable. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmont Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is the award-winning, best-selling, and anger-inducing. Am I three for three? Yeah, I think it's three for three. That's pretty good. <laughs> Gerald Posner, we're discussing some of his works. It's an honor to have you on the show 
I want to ask you about that, what I just mentioned in jest, and then spend the rest of our time talking about Case Closed, Case Closed, your book about the JFK assassination. When you go to write a book, especially the ones that you've written, you are going to upset people. Just as you said a few minutes ago, you will tell your story, but I'll also have a take on your story. How do you forge through that? Or well, does part of you enjoy that? No, I don't. So I don't enjoy it. Yeah, I'm sure that there are people that enjoy it. You know, people enjoy prof- being professional wrestlers or every day getting on a some podcast. Well, Kitty, like Someone like Kitty Kelly clearly enjoyed making controversy with her biographies. That's right. I, I agree with that. And so for me, the when I told you early on that I view that as it's like public interest or things that are important that I'm interested in myself, when I'm doing the Mengele book, I can't see anybody disagreeing with it. Some Nazis, some right-wingers that might say, oh, we wish you weren't so hard on Mengele or the Nazi party. Okay, fine, go for it. I can't see people getting that upset about Chinese drug syndicates running the heroin trade. And the same about Hitler's children. Now, with the Kennedy book, it wasn't supposed to be a book that said, here's who killed Kennedy. It was supposed to be a book with a lawyer's background. I'd gone to my to Random House with an idea before Hitler's children and said, hey, I've always had an interest in the Kennedy assassination. I was in law school from 75 to 78 in San Francisco when the House Select Committee was doing its work. So I've always followed it. And I know one thing. I haven't studied it in depth, but I know it can't all be right. It can't be the mafia if it's also the KGB, if it's also Castro, a guy shooting from the sewer, if it's somebody shooting from the grass. Mm -hmm. Let me go through it all with a lawyer's hat on and say, here are the five, six, seven, whatever, the number of issues that we can't resolve. Those are the mysteries remaining in the case. And everything else, I'll debunk it to show the fake stuff out there. Then you market the book by saying, this is a primer on the Kennedy assassination. Read it before you read anything else. And they weren't interested. They said, no one will be interested in that. Okay, fine. I went back to them with the idea for Hitler's Children, and they did that. And I published that book, Hitler's Children, in 1990. That's shocking. I don't mean to interrupt. Forgive me. But basically, the Kennedy assassination has never left the media's or the American people's consciousness. Why did they think that no one would be interested? I think that it's not. So with publishers, there's something different here. So when I'm going to a publisher, I'm asking them to sign a contract that pays me in advance of some type, some of which they're going to give me on the signing of the contract. And that's going to allow me to do the research, pay my bills for a little bit of time. They don't want to part with money unless they think the, and they don't know what's going to be a bestseller. If they did, they'd only publish bestsellers. It's a real hit and miss business. I get that. But they have to be excited enough. And they thought there have been so many books. One of the things I did in the proposal to them is I said there have been nearly like right. fifteen or 1,600 books at that time. Yeah. And they're all over the field. And they said, that shows you the market's saturated. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> reading this stuff except for a horse. And then something happened. Oliver Stone did JFK. So in the interim, Stone does JFK, the only good thing he ever did for me, a great director, lousy historian, but he yes, energizes- yes. Give me your, no, you can't do that. You have to give us the quote because Oliver Stone was somewhat dismissive of your book. Is that way to, a nice way to put it? I would say that's right. And I say only a little tongue in cheek that the only thing he got right in that film was the date on which Kennedy was killed. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he likes that. 
but but he's a good filmmaker, but a bad historian. And the thing is, when he made that film, it was he put the Kennedy assassination back on the radar for everybody. Fine. Then the publisher said to me, this is publishing, hey, that book you were talking to us about before, maybe there's a market for that book because so many people are into Kennedy now. So I started the book with that. It wasn't until halfway through the book that I had the meeting with my Random House editor, Bob Loomis, and with Harry Evans, who was then the editor of, of Random House, the former editor of the Times of London, and, and told them that I thought they could put out a book instead of doing the primer on the assassination, a book that said, who killed Kennedy? And Robert, I remember this. There are some memories more vivid than others for you as you look back in the past, maybe because I was so nervous that day. And they said to Harry, I think it was, who said, who? And I said, Oswald. And who? And I said, Oswald. And there literally was this moment in which they didn't say anything, but there was almost like this thought of, oh, we signed this guy to a book and he read the Warren Commission and he's come back with Oswald. What are we going to do? Harry, the editor of Random House, thought it was the Mafia. Only when he saw what I had, what was new, what ballistics experts could do, the things that were fresh on it, then he became a believer that it was, in fact, Oswald. And when that book was published on the 30th anniversary in 93, published a few months before, Random House was afraid, and so was I, that no one would buy it because there were 13 or 14 books published on the 30th anniversary. They were all books with a new version of a conspiracy theory. I was the only one who said it was the Warren Commission made a lot of mistakes, but got the underlying thing that it was Oswald alone. And they actually said to me, Random House, the few people who think it's Oswald aren't going to buy the book because they're going to say, why should I spend 25 or $30 on something I already know? And the vast majority of people who think it's a conspiracy are going to say, what a bunch of junk. Uh, I'm not going to read that book. But we didn't know until publication that the most outrageous position to advocate in the case after 30 years was to say it was Oswald alone. And it goes back to your question, do I like making people angry? If you had said to me that in 13 books, and I've written about Nazis and the the drug trade in 9-11 and Saudi Arabia and the Vatican and everything else in the pharmaceutical industry, that the book that I received the most pushback on, physical threats, had to open a police file, got dead fish sent to me, a rat's tail was accosted on the street on an airplane once, would be over saying it was Oswald alone. I would have thought you were crazy. But that made people furious. They, the people who believed that there was a vast government conspiracy to kill the president, Oliver Stone re-energizes the investigation of the case with his movie. I now understand this. I didn't at the time. Then this guy comes along, me, who has no credential in the JFK assassination, has never studied it. I put out a book that says it's Oswald alone. And all the mainstream press, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CBS, PBS, they all come in and embrace it. That's because they never investigated the case in the first place. So they've been waiting for somebody like me to come along and say, hey, you guys didn't have to investigate it. It really was Oswald. So they all give it a great review. And then it's a finalist for the Pulitzer, which is all evidence that the mainstream media missed the investigation. They endorse my book because I let them off the hook and I must be part of either the cover up or whatever else. People were enraged. I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't what I was looking for. I underestimated it. And the, it was an interesting, eye-opening experience. Is it your best-selling book so far? Yes. The, uh, the, I say all these years later, Case Closed sold more copies than any other book. And by the way, as a sidelight, if you want to compare assassination to assassination, 
for re readers or listeners or anybody thinking of writing, in 98, I put out a book on the King assassination and much more complicated case, believe it or not. JFK is not a piece of cake. I don't mean to say that, but the King assassination is really tough. And Ray, James or Ray, I do think prompted by money, maybe had some help from his family members, although they'd always denied they'd helped him. And a much more tougher character to figure out, a 40-year-old assassin versus the 24-year-old Oswald. That book had much more news in it. I'd, I found the person that Ray said was Raul, the mystery Raul, man, so yeah. do everything. And I unmasked him and showed it. it's not possible that he had anything to do with it. That came out just before the 30th anniversary of the King assassination. Got re reviews as good or better than Case Closed, front page of the New York Times, reads like a detective story, two-part documentary on the morning with NBC and then on CBS and, uh, and on Frontline, and that book sold nothing. So there's a very interesting thing. People assume if they aren't writers, that if you get the coverage, if you're in the news, if you didn't know what the sales numbers were, you would have seen all the press I got in the King assassination and assumed I was selling a ton of books, but people weren't interested for whatever reason. Black America wasn't interested because I didn't have J. Edgar Hoover in a dress shooting from behind a maybe a, a fence. White America didn't care maybe 30 years later who had killed King or what the reasons were. For whatever reason, I don't know. But you can't figure the business out in that sense. So case closed, concluding it was Oswald, sold a book that was more difficult in many ways and a greater challenge, the King assassination, tons of coverage, but no sales. Let's stick just very quickly with the King assassination Ray lives, I know he escaped at one point and was caught again, right. but he lives for several decades after the assassination. When did he die? I can look it up real quick. Here on my he computer. died. As a matter of fact, he, when I say Oliver Stone had the good common sense of doing his movie so I could get a book deal, mm -hmm. James Earl Ray died a few weeks before I published my book in 98 and put the King assassination back on the radar for the media. That's one of the reasons the book made a big splash. But he says he didn't do it. That's right. And at one point, didn't one of Martin Luther King's sons agree with him, said, I believe you, you didn't do it. That's what prompted me to write the book. Because the if you want to say, I knew enough about the King assassination and know this. If you want to say Ray and his family, they are, you can't use the word white trash anymore, the term. That would have been the old term for them. As generations of criminals, great-grandfather hanged as part of a gang, father, uncles, they were born into a criminal family and that's where they were. And they had this view of blacks, a denigrating view of blacks that they were the lowest people on the totem pole. Ray was definitely involved. It's his rifle, it's the whole process. For the King family, for the victim's children to come in and to say to him, we believe you, we think you're innocent, was turning history on its head. Ray got the final laugh. Not only had he killed the preacher that he wanted to kill, but he duped some of the family all those years later. Now, a sidelight, Trisha and I, my, my wife Trisha and I have talked about this recently, and I don't know if the, the, we seem to live in an era nowadays, you talked about apologizing for the Crusades or things like that, but we live in an era in which of identity politics and in which people, I don't know if I could write, when I wrote that book, concluding that Ray had killed King, and I criticized the King family, the first family of civil rights, to many people. I was not, I did not hold back on criticizing them for being wrong. I said, I'm sure they believe it, but this is, it's just a perversion of history. Nobody ever said racist. Nobody ever said you as a white journalist doing the King assassination do not have the right 
to say that about the King family today, I'm sure that might be brought up as an issue. It would be mixed into the whole process of it. I like the era in which that wasn't part of it because it shouldn't be. You should be able to, as a historian, a journalist, come to a conclusion in an important area of history, draw that conclusion and not get it muddied up by having somebody try to throw you off message. And I don't know if that could be done today. I'm not sure if I could do that. I'm not sure if I could do the Motown book on the business of Motown and talk about the way that the artists were ripped off with suitcases of cash. The, uh, there, there are some good things to be said about writing books 20 years ago. And you're convinced Ray acted on his, lo- on his own? The, it, Ray's tougher to figure out on his own. I'm sure he took some secrets to the grave. I'm sure he's the gunman without any question. And if there, and I know this about Ray from all the studying I did of him, that man would not have spent a day in jail after he revoked his guilty plea on the assassination if it was to save the life of some co-conspirator who was giving him money to kill King or whatever. He would have only stayed silent for one thing, and that's his family. The Ray was only loyal to family. All the Ray brothers were. His two brothers, Jerry and John, convicted criminals, felons. As a matter of fact, I lay out in the book how I think Ray found out about one of the bounties from a bar that John, his older brother, owned after he was released from prison. The Rays stuck to themselves. They, if there was a plot, they tried to protect each other. And the only people Ray would have stayed silent about it if his brothers were involved. Now, I thought that was big news that there might be this kitchen conspiracy with money. But I didn't realize, again, I learn things sometimes, that to most people, when you talk assassinations and conspiracy, they think Oliver Stone conspiracy, secret government, Mr. X, things like that. Right. They don't think of a group of family members helping it. It's not enough. Tim McVeigh blows up the, the Murrah building. And he had the help of Terry Nichols. That's not a conspiracy. It is a conspiracy for us lawyers. But it's not a conspiracy in terms of the way people think of conspiracies nowadays. And people had thought, and we're going to switch back to the Kennedy assassination here in just a minute for the rest of our time. We are speaking with author and historian Gerald Posner about many of his books and his writing and his love of law. Most people, I got the sense, I was born in 67, so obviously I don't remember the 68 assassinations, uh, just basically thought. Ray was a racist and he killed a black guy and he was tired of hearing him. And then he just had a chance and he did it there at the Lorraine motel. Whereas, and it wasn't, although there are pictures of the aftermath of that assassination, there's not the Zapruder film. Right. And there's not a grassy knoll and there's not the cold war. And I just am, I marvel at the people who are so convinced there is a conspiracy regarding john f kennedy now there's a bunch of chatter and maybe this is your next book about the conspiracy to kill robert kennedy and it wasn't him and it couldn't have been it couldn't have just been one gunman because of the placement of the bullets in the wall and so on and so forth do you enjoy debunking you i don't ask you you another question very quickly because i'm gonna ask this earlier and did you choose the name of your book as a way to no, they, so uh, the, yeah, two things. Once I am convinced that this is where the evidence leads, as I was with Kennedy, so it's Oswald, then I enjoy debunking. All right. Because, but in the beginning, you're not debunking because you're actually hoping. Here's the long shot. What's the Hail Mary pass for a journalist doing the Kennedy assassination? 
that you're going to find the piece of evidence that establishes a conspiracy with the mafia or whatever else that nobody has seen before, that's credible, that's going to convince the networks and the New York Times and everything else that it's really a conspiracy. Boy, you're bigger overnight than any other reporter. That's the big story. Coming back and saying is Oswald alone, and there's some new ballistics evidence, the Warren Commission got the shooting sequence, is great history, but it's not the most exciting in terms of disclosure. But once I come to that, yeah, then I enjoy the debunking because it's just a matter of common sense and finding out how did that get on the record and why was that repeated so many times and where did that start? When you go back to the original material, there is a bit of fun in that. Publishers, I don't know if I've ever had a book title I've submitted on a proposal that's worked as a book title in the end. Publishers end up choosing your the book title together in consultation is the word the contract uses with the author. And I don't know if it was Harry Evans or May of Harry was very, he was an aggressive journalist. He had founded the Insight team at the Times of London. That was a team of investigative reporters that went off and broke the DC-10 safety stories, the thalidomide stories, a lot of stuff. So he knew how to market things. And when we had case closed, bouncing around for a while, I remember asking Bob Loomis, my editor, I said, do you think it needs a question mark at the end, case closed? And he said, no. He said, you've made the case and we're, we're going to put it out as case closed. Now, I understand that's an inflammatory title. I get it. That makes people crazy. It's a good marketing title. If you're thinking <laughs> of marketing, there are a couple of good titles in the Kennedy assassination. Mark Lane came out with one of the early conspiracy books, Rush to Judgment. We use yeah. that as part of our vernacular now. That's pretty good. Another one called Best Evidence. I think that's yeah. pretty good. So case closed is certainly in a case in which most people think it will never be closed, is a provocative title to say the least, and might be some of the reasons for so much grief. The, um, and have you changed your opinion on it at all? Has uh, not, no, anything new come out? I, I've done an afterword for the 60th anniversary that is only on the electronic version, the digital version, because the print people say when we do a new edition, we'll do it. So the digital edition has a new 4,000 word afterword that sort of brings you up to date uh, since the last time I've done one, which was 20 years ago, about what's been released in the files and how they haven't shown anything different than what we expected with 4,000 files still left. And then also discusses the disclosure of this Secret Service agent who came out with a book yeah. this past, last year that said, I found a whole bullet at the scene, which I think, and I explained this in some detail, resolves the issue of how the single bullet, the so-called single bullet, what Oliver Stone calls the magic bullet, magic bullet. that ended up on a trolley at at Parkland Hospital. And so I think we finally have the answer from that. I haven't changed. I think the information that's come out from the assassination files over the years and from my witness accounts, like that Secret Service agent, have bolstered the conclusion that I came up with in 93. Flynn Hill was a, a Secret Service agent, and he is most famous for the picture of the film of him climbing on the back of the Kennedy limousine as Mrs. Kennedy is climbing, I believe, to retrieve a piece of the of president's skull. He came on the podcast. It's one of my favorite interviews. He was incredibly gracious and forthcoming. He And I told him, I said, look, I don't care about any conspiracy. I just want to talk to you about the day. And I didn't really ask him, but if memory serves, he didn't come up with some giant spin, some giant web. What struck me in interviewing Clint was his saying, Oswald had all the advantages. He yeah. was concealed. He was behind us. He was an expert shot. The idea that he couldn't get off that many shots so quickly, that accurate was a joke. Uh, do you agree with that? That Oswald yeah. on that day had every advantage? 
he had the advantage in that he nobody spotted him during the time his rifle was sticking out the window. One one construction worker did down on the street level, a guy called Howard Brennan later provided the description of police, mid-20s, brown hair, Caucasian male that sort of went out as the all points bulletin. Really, no, not enough people saw it to point up and say, oh my God, there's a rifle there. The day was clear weather. There had been a forecast when the Dallas papers had run the uh, the motorcade route a couple of days earlier. They said chance of showers would have meant maybe the bubble top would have been on. It's not bulletproof, but that would have made it tougher for Oswald to be able to get a clear shot, especially if it was raining. He says he's a, a good shot. He's a good enough shot that day to pull off the assassination. What I mean by that is three shots. The first one misses as you start the assassination clock running when the first when the trigger's pulled because the bullet's in the chamber. So he pulls the trigger, that shot misses, it's, it deflects, it goes 500 feet out, doesn't hit anyone in the car, hits a curbstone and wounds a bystander, James Tague on the cheek. Now, we know how long to the next shot because you can see when the single bullet takes place around frames 224, 225 in the Zapruder film. It's eight, that Zapruder film is our clock for the assassination. It's 18.3 frames to a second. The Oswald then has three and a half seconds to redo the bolt, pulls it back, aims again through the four power scope, fires, not a fatal shot, wounds the president, a high neck, rear shoulder area. That's the bullet that goes on, I believe, to then wound Conley. At that point, he has five seconds for the final headshot, which is at frame 313. If the driver of the limo had made any evasive maneuvers, if the driver of the limo had hit the gas pedal and was zooming out of Dealey Plaza, as he testified to the Warren Commission, he was the oldest member of the security detail that day. The, but instead, the film, the Zapruder film, doesn't lie. It shows the driver of the car, which had been moving 10, 11 miles an hour in the slow motorcade, turning around and looking at the back at the president at the moment of the headshot. So the car slowed to about five miles an hour, making no evasive moves. The president doesn't fall over. He's got a back brace on. He's wounded from the second shot. His head's rolled a little bit to the left. Jackie's trying to push down on his elbow, which is raised up. So Oswald gets the straight on shot, full five seconds, and almost misses. The bullet hits in the high right rear portion of the head. An inch and a half higher, Kennedy lives. It's a failed assassination. And people get crazy over the fact that there could be an element of not luck. I don't mean luck in terms of good fortune or things like this, but everything has to break right for the assassin. So when you say is all the advantage Oswald, all of it broke right for him. That happened when George Wallace got shot. The, he had passed the area where Bremer was and came back then to see a baby so Bremer could get through the crowd to take a shot at him. When Sir what about Hans the, Ar- the Archduke Ferdinand? The Arch- exactly, an assassination that didn't have to happen. When you think about it, Unlikely if his, that if his driver knew where the ho- where the hospital was, would have been completely different. So those are the things. And a moment ago, you're right when you say that there's more speculation because of the nature of Kennedy and Camelot and the best and the brightest. And then what happened afterwards with Vietnam and Watergate. And it, it, we ch- tend to think that it all would have been different and better under Kennedy. People like to think that. And so maybe there's not as much fascination with King. But I think that King and Kennedy... Both assassinations, though, even though Ray was caught, there were still a lot of people that weren't sure he was the assassin because of one factor that's common to both. And it's unusual for assassinations. 
and that is that a high-powered rifle is used at a distance. We are accustomed to the Archduke, to the Sirhan Sirhans, to the Bremers, to the, the Chapmans with somebody rushing up with a pistol, shooting the person. This You tackle the gunman. You know at least who the shooter is. Now, you don't know if there's a conspiracy, but you know at least one shooter is the person with the pistol. Here, in both of these assassinations, you have the high-powered shot from a rifle from a distance, and in the immediate aftermath of both assassinations, the assassin gets away, and that means people think of, oh, Dave the Jackal, a hired assassin, this approach. <laughs> what a great movie. Yeah, great, and they think it must be. And then, in both cases, the assassin's rifle is found at the scene. In Ray's case, it's dumped in front of a storefront, in front of the flop house from where he fired the shots. In Oswald's, it's on the sixth floor where he had fled from. And people say, oh, come on. You mean to say this guy was good enough to pull off a high-powered rifle assassination and get away, but he left the murder weapon? Of course, because the quandary for the assassin working on their own is you either take the murder weapon with you and hope you can hide it underneath a jacket or raincoat, but if you get stopped, you're toast, you're finished, they know it's you. Or you have to dump it somewhere and hope it's gonna take them a, a few days to match it up to you and you're gonna get away and out of the country. And there are a lot of reasons why, but I do understand why people initially say, and then they find out about Oswald and Ray, they say Ray's a three-time loser and he ended up in London and he pulled off the assassination, I don't believe it. Oswald's a 24-year-old loser in life and he killed Kennedy, I don't believe it. So I understand why people are resistant to thinking they're the shooters, but that's why you got to get into the facts. Was there anyone on the grassy knoll who participated in the Kennedy assassination? Not only was there nobody on the grassy knoll who participated in the Kennedy assassination, there's nobody on the grassy knoll. The pictures of the grassy knoll at that time, nobody's standing behind the fence because they don't get a very good view of the motorcade. They're standing in front of the fence. That's where Abraham Zapruder was. He was standing on a little concrete pillar not far away from the grassy knoll. The shooter who was supposed to be there would have been a few feet to his right and right behind him, not firing from a great deal of description. And so I say that the real magic bullet, if you want to have a magic bullet in the Kennedy assassination, it was the bullet fired by the so-called phantom shooter on the grassy knoll because that bullet hit no one. It didn't hit Kennedy. The x-rays and the autopsy photos show that he was only hit from behind. Didn't hit Mrs. Kennedy, didn't hit the governor, didn't hit his wife, didn't hit the Secret Service agents in the front, didn't hit anybody standing on the other side of the uh, the motorcade or watching it go by. So the world-class assassin, <laughs> who supposedly is on the grass, fires a shot and misses everybody. That's the magic bullet. Last question before we get to the five questions we ask all of our guests. How does, and you watch it on YouTube, and it's to me, it's more unbelievable. Mechanics of the Kennedy assassination are believable. He had concealment, he had cover, he had a steady aim. What you say, bright day, five miles an hour. But when you watch the video of Oswald being shot in the basement of the police station, you just are like, I can't believe it. I can only imagine what the American people felt as they were watching it. Do you have any thoughts on how that happened, other than the fact that he was known to the police and various other things? Do you agree with the story that he just did it for revenge and fame or whatever? Yeah, I don't think he did so much for revenge. I think he concocted that story a little bit, Jack Ruby, about doing it to present prevent Jackie from coming back. Ruby was a guy, and the problem with Ruby 
is I do a couple of chapters in depth on him, on his biography and what he was doing minute by minute from the time of the assassination from actually the day before. And there's no soundbite that explains Ruby. You can't say Jack Ruby did it for X, Y, and Z. He's complicated, but he's a volatile, violent character. He was his own bouncer at his strip club in Dallas. He carried a gun all the time and he was impetuous. And that Sunday, when he finally, he's there on Friday night at the police station, because why? All the action in Dallas is at the police station because the international press is there and Jack Ruby's handing out his business card saying to people, bringing in sandwiches and saying, before you leave <laughs> Dallas, stop by the carousel and see the girls dance. The uh, carousel guys. club in the Vegas room. That's right. The, and he's there on Saturday. And on Sunday, when he gets there, because he's sending a money grant to a stripper of his who needs $25, and he has to go downtown. Oswald's being transferred from the police station and has been delayed for a little bit. When Ruby walks into that garage down that ramp, it's a spur of the moment thing. And when he's tackled by the police, he's saying to them, he's yelling, hey, you know me, it's Jack, you know me. He thinks he's going to get either a pat on the back for having killed the guy who killed the president. In his world, that's the way it would work. The very worst he could get is a thing called murder without malice, which is they had a law in Texas at that time. You kill somebody, you didn't really hate him, you get five years. And he was shocked when he got to the convicted of murder. That case was on appeal. But Ruby screwed it up for all of us for, that are interested in history, because by killing Oswald, he guaranteed Oswald never gets to trial. We never see the evidence. It looks like a, I was suspicious. Originally, if you asked me before I did the book, what I thought might be the answer to the Kennedy assassination, I would have said the mafia because of Ruby's killing of Oswald. Then I find out that the mafia in Chicago knew nothing about Ruby. There are these tape recordings of them when they didn't know they were being recorded. They didn't know who the hell he was. So there are reasons not to believe that afterwards. But at the time, he makes us all suspicious that if James Earl Wade had been killed three days after he was in police custody by somebody with ties to the KKK, we would be much more suspicious about the case. Booth, Prince Oswald, Sirhan, Berkowitz, Ray, Hinckley, all these losers. We forget Squeaky Fromm came within a few, just a few inches of killing President Ford. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Mr. Gerald Posner, are you ready? I am indeed. And these are not Posner-esque questions. That should give you a hint to how easy they are. What was your first job? Oh, uh, my first job as a 14-year-old kid was putting on wire hangers at a dry cleaners in San Francisco for a couple of bucks an hour, a, this like foam that they had that went over the wire hanger. And that was in the 60s. My parents were convinced I should work early. My first real job was working at a law, at a law firm as a clerk. What was your first? You grew up in this in the era of concerts, the great concerts. What was your first concert? My first concert was Vanilla Fudge at the Fillmore West. And my favorite concert during that period of great music out, or what I view as great music, at least, my wife would disagree, was the Led Zeppelin at the Greek Theater in Berkeley. Which and album? When they were, no, and this was early on. They just come out with Immigrant Song. And so the Greek Theater holds like 1,500 people, you know, no stadiums, nothing else. This was a time when they were playing what smaller venues. And so we thought it was pretty great. And what was great about small venues of Fillmore West was that you could stand near the speakers, which were some decibel level that today would be closed down by some health authority <laughs> as being damaging your hearing. And that you could have your ears ringing for another three days. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? 
a World War II book that I love is Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. If you want the overall history, it's a great job of putting into a single book that, but there are too many good books. You mentioned, oh, yeah. yeah, you mentioned before Alter Skelter is a fascinating take on that crime. And my and list of books that I like is long. Bugliosi was somewhat critical of your case closed book because he wrote a book on the JFK assassination. Yeah, as a sidelight, I know this isn't part of the five, but I'll give you, two, this will come in as two and a half. So Vince and I used to go out, we met each other around 1989 or 90. And we went out to a few college campuses and debated the legalization of drugs. He was for it. I was against it. How's that for an unusual thing? So that was it. And he said to me at that time, I'm thinking of doing a book on the Kennedy assassination. And I said, oh, I tried to do one, but my publisher wasn't interested. And then we weren't in touch. The next thing he knew, I put out Case Closed in 93. He put out his sort of large tome about reclaiming history, I guess, what, 10, 15 years later. And he couldn't put it out as Case Still Closed. So he had to do was longer, more detailed. Right. He took a couple of shots, but I never minded that. His is a very good book. And his thesis on Helter Skelter was, it's been challenged ever since yes, the book right. came out. But this fellow, and he was on Joe Rogan, and I can't think of his name, but he, the CIA, the Manson murders yeah. and all that yeah. sort of thing. And I've read that book. And it's actually very interesting because it makes you think for a second. It's presented very well. And the what I have to remind myself always, sometimes, not always, I sometimes forget. So Bugliosi is a prosecutor right. and he's not a natural journalist. So he's writing books as a prosecutor. He did Helter Skelter that way. It's his case. And I, and he does reclaiming history that way. Some people think that I sound prosecutorial in my case closed, but I'm trying to do it as a journalist. I don't have, <laughs> I don't have a prosecutor's background. It's a different thing. And when Mark Lane did the book, Rush to Judgment, he does it as a defense lawyer. He's not doing it as a historian or academic. He's presenting the case for the defense for Oswald. So when you read those books, as Bugliosi's book, as more of a prosecuting attorney as opposed to a historian journalist, it might be viewed in a slightly different light. And Oliver Stone did his movie as a? Oliver Stone, I think, is a true believer. There's no doubt that he put that movie out, not just to make a dollar. He put it out because he thought that was the truth. The, uh, th that's the thing about being delusional when it comes to the case. There's no question. A lot of people really hold on to the idea that there's a vast conspiracy. And I think Stone thought that he was going to solve the case somehow. Comes through a little bit in his uh, absolutely fabulous book on, or excuse me, movie about Nixon. Yeah, absolutely. The Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? I think the three days after the crucifixion, I'd like to see, I know I'm the doubting Thomas, raised Catholic, but I'd like to see the resurrection. It'll tell me a resurrection happened, not happened, or change a lot of history if I know one way or the other. The, I could <laughs> then do the case closed and say, all right, no more thinking about it. This guy actually did rise from the dead. Three days later, he's got, or didn't happen, I'm sorry to tell you, and we can avoid the Inquisition and the Crusades and everything else. The, and giving up sweets for Lent. And, and giving up sweets for Lent. And we also have to dismantle the Vatican and sell off his art. Number five, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose besides your lovely wife? The, uh, this will sound, maybe it might sound odd. I might have said 
Putin to you a year ago, just because I had to get into finding out what he possibly could think he's doing that isn't going to destroy half of Europe. But today I would actually say I'd like two hours off the record, believe it or not, with Musk, Elon Musk, because I know one thing, there's nobody that's going to in two hours change my fundamental view of the world and how I think and how I go about things and my own sense of integrity. But I have no doubt that two hours with him off the record would be entertaining. And two hours of entertainment would be would be fairly high standing. He, I hate to say this, but as a free speech absolutist, I guess I don't hate to say it, they should carve his face on a mountain for what he's done for people who just want to have an honest dialogue. Yeah, so it's interesting you say that because I've written about this on my Substack and the attack on free speech and how we are we consider ourselves to be a society where free speech is protected, but it's free speech is protected unless you say something that the people who are in charge don't like. Uh, and one of the best things that has happened on X or Twitter is the idea that uh, you can go ahead. There are going to be people on there that you can't stand. There are going to be people saying nasty things. And those are actually the people you have to defend the right to do it. That's how I grew up. I grew up thinking that I remember the fight over the Nazis marching in Skokie. Yeah, no one wanted it except for the Nazi supporters, but the people were standing up for their right to do it. And one of the great disappointments over time, the ACLU, which everybody used to hate in middle America because they used to come out and support the Nazi, they now come out against people's right to speak at universities or conservatives to talk about gender or whatever else. They say, oh, yeah, we're against that because that's hate speech or that's triggering somebody or that. And come on, Musk is absolutely the extent to which he has restored a public square that allows all types of discourse, some of which I don't like at all. And the, the one thing that is good on this is you have a block button. Trisha, for instance, my wife is very outspoken on Israel and her experience with being bullied with anti-Semitism in British schools and that. I think she's blocked around 700 people in the last, <laughs> since October 7th. Some nasty, virulent, nasty people. But that's the great thing. You don't have to have them in your backyard if you don't want. May I ask you one very last quick question? If you could solve one mystery controversy other than, of course, Christ and the resurrection, like in the last couple hundred years, like there's this mystery out there about whether X really happened, or I just did a podcast on Jack the Ripper. What would you oh, want to, what would you want to solve? This guy did it, or she did it, or this happened or didn't happen. No, Jack the Ripper would be fantastic. Of course, Patricia Cornwall, very good nonfiction writer, took the title Case Closed on Jack the Ripper, put that out after Case Closed on the Kennedy case. And most of the Ripperologists said, that's not right. No, no, that's not right. I love that. It didn't solve anything. You know, the, the Ripper would be fantastic without any doubt. But I, I also think that what would be great, I, my, so my inkling, my, my bias is formed by Michael Shermer, who you've had on, who you, or you've talked to him, Shermer on uh, extraterrestrials and, and unidentified flying objects. And, and that he thinks that there's no such thing. That's what I tend to think as well. But I'd be willing to change my mind if I could investigate it and find something different. I don't think I would, but that's really the challenge as an, as an investigator is to go into something. People say, I went into a subject and I had no view of what I thought. That's not true. We all have a feeling about some big subject if you're raised with it, but you don't know if you're right. So I think that hey, we haven't seen them, but I'm willing to be persuaded otherwise. And I'm not saying that to have your listeners inundate me 
with emails <laughs> about new sightings, but that would be fine for me. The, uh, Before we sign off, does Mrs. Posner have any fact-checking she wants to? Uh, Trisha, to... any fact-checking you have? No. The, the, you're good? I'm good about it, yeah. The, uh, no. We just, want to, we just want to hear her accent on... I just say, okay, last thing, I'll leave, you, I'll leave your listeners with this so they, uh, before they start to just turn it off on their own. When I first met her, Trisha, now 43 years ago, I said to her, I was trying to think of something, I met her in New York City, and a friend, and she was working on 3rd Avenue, trying to think of something clever as the guy to say to, say to the girl. And so I said, very unclever and very unimaginative. I like your accent. And she, her accent was even stronger then. And she said, without missing a beat, I don't have an accent. I'm British. And I thought, wow, she's not even trying to impress me. That's amazing. <laughs> I like her. That's so fantastic. And then I went back to meet her family in a couple of years. They all said, you have such a nice American accent. And I realized that. And she is not, she has kept to the not impress you for the last. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely true. She's uh, my uh, <laughs> dose of common sense all the time. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been Gerald Posner. He's won awards. He sold untold number of books. He's caused several million people around the globe, not only to be upset at what he wrote, but also to question their own beliefs because of the quality of what he writes. Mr. Posner, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Veteran